Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Fuse, a bomb podcast. 40 years ago, bomb began as a conversation between artists around a kitchen table in downtown New York. Today, Fuse brings you into the room to listen in on candid, unfiltered conversations about creative practice. Here's how it works. Bomb invites a distinguished artist to choose a guest from any creative discipline, an art crush, a close collaborator, or even a stranger they've admired from afar. And we bring them together. No host, no moderator, no interruptions. Just two artists in conversation. For this episode, we asked musician and songwriter David Byrne which artist he'd most like to speak with. He chose hip-hop artist and comedian Open Mike Eagle. I'd recently heard some records, songs, things that Mike had done, and I really liked them, but I was also really intrigued. What world is this man coming from? I had lots of questions. What's his background? How did he arrive here? What are the influences? It was all kind of like, wow, how did this happen? So when you guys invited me to talk with someone, I said, I would love to talk to Mike and find out more about how he does what he does, where it comes from, what he's thinking, where he's going, all that kind of stuff. I thought, eh, somebody I'd want to talk to anyway. So <laughs> let's just let's put it on the record. Open Mike Eagle has over a dozen solo and collaborative projects to his name. He is the founder of Auto Reverse Records and co-founder of The New Negroes, a stand-up meets music variety show that explores perceptions of blackness. Eagle's most recent album, Anime, Trauma, and Divorce, was released last year. David Byrne is a musician, composer, and producer, and the co-founder of the band Talking Heads. His recent acclaimed rock spectacle, American Utopia, toured the world and was adapted into a Broadway play as well as a concert film directed by Spike Lee. Byrne has received Academy, Grammy, and Golden Globe Awards and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002. David reveals how he wrote the iconic Talking Heads song, Burning Down the House, and the pair discuss gatekeeping in the music industry, anime as inspiration, and what punchlines can teach you about songwriting. It's so funny that you say, how did he get here? Because I, since I knew we were going to have this conversation, that question has been ringing in my head <laughs> a lot. And I may find myself taking some pauses as I answer because I have a little anxiety because your music has been in my life 
for a very long time. One of my earliest musical memories when I was like five or six years old was, it, it may be, I think it's like the second song I ever remember hearing was Burning Down the House. And I always remember it because it's scared me, David. <laughs> it scared me. The way that you sing the verses, da, 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 like that literally frightened me. And, you know, uh, Once in a Lifetime is is literally one of my favorite songs ever. Like if I were to make an objective top 10 list, that song would be on there. Wow. Thank you. Of course. And, I, you know, I don't know if there's a structure to how we go back and forth with questions or whatever. But you, as far as I know, you know, having started in that New York kind of new wave scene and I have experience hearing once in a lifetime just as a song but i've also heard it sampled in hip-hop songs a couple of really notable times once was by pete rock and cl smooth and another time was by jay-z i am very intrigued to 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 know how you feel about having been sampled and how involved you were in the process of of those rap records being made off of your song well, first off, I yeah, I have no problem with being sampled. Of course, no problem if uh, if I get paid. <laughs> but you know, morally or musically or whatever, no, I have no problem with it. It's part of how we make music now. And yeah, we don't just get inspired by some music we've heard. We can actually take a piece of some music we've heard and use that as a building block. I do the same thing. But often when I'm writing, I'll get a loop out of something and I'll work on top of that. And then eventually I'll replace the loop. Probably like a lot of people, I've learned that sometimes if I can replace it, then it might save me a lot of money. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's very flattering because obviously it means somebody's listening to your music, whether it is Jay-Z, which it might, might be, might not be, or it might be the producer or whoever is working with him or who's, whoever is putting together the beats and the loops and whatever that he's working with, they might kind of grab that. Yeah, so I'm aware that there are people working on music who have very wide musical tastes. I've heard like Missy Elliott beats where I go, wait a minute, that's like that's like a Japanese record that he just sampled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's been, you know, and, and not to cut you off, I'm always fascinated by that because I know that people who aren't in hip hop sometimes have really pointed sort of just in the way that they think about hip hop. They don't think of it as quote unquote real music because of the sampling and because it's not, you know, it's not a lot of people playing, you know, chords and keys and, and guitars. It's it's a lot of uh, using other people's records. And like I said, just you being a part of that new wave scene that I know kind of coincided with the beginning of hip hop. I just bet that you had like a, a unique kind of take on it because your proximity to it was different than a lot of people's. A little bit. There was a, yeah, there were a few years there where there was a kind of mixing and cross fertilization with different scenes of folks from the Bronx mixing with kind of graffiti kids downtown and then like art rock kids like myself, and kind of sometimes all in the same clubs or hanging out in the same places, which is it's a really nice moment. I'm going to say that you, Roy, the Jamaican toaster just just passed away and to many people he's the father of rap and a lot of hip-hop which is something that i i didn't know my history you're <laughs> illuminating that for me right now <laughs> apparently he was the first person to kind of take the record tracks and kind of toast or or rap over over parts of the record and then he got to be so good at it and so much in demand that people said 
we want to put out a record of you doing that. What you what you've been doing at parties and you know street gatherings. We want you to we want to record that, and that be, it became a thing. And some of I forget who it was in the early hip hop community here, but there were there were definitely Jamaicans. Yeah, for sure. In that in that community, so it's very likely that that all kind of came out that way. Anyway, anyway, that's another. Another, another whole thing. I want to, uh, okay, I'm going to describe my creative process on burning down the house. And then I'm going to ask you about your, your process. I think this, that one started with the band improvising. And we kind of came up with a couple of different sections of things with the kind of, and we would basically then, we didn't have words, didn't have a melody, anything like that. But we kind of went in because, okay, we're going to play this section for whatever, 16 bars. And then we're going to go to this other section. And we'll go back to the other one. That so we make imagined what a structure. Then I would improvised not exactly uh, the words, but I improvised just kind of the sh- where the words would fall, like the melody or the ah, that whatever that all that stuff. And I just sang whatever came into my head, and I took that away. And I said, okay, this be my guide. I'm going to write words to that. The words on that one, the verses are pretty much all non sequiturs. I mean, they don't, there's not, it's not telling a story, but it has a unified feeling. And I thought, I can do this. I can, I, I can make this work and nobody's going to question it. If they look at it objectively, they're going to go, this doesn't make you, uh, we don't know what you're talking about. But when you feel it, the way it's sung, the way it, the words are put together, it has a feeling and people just go with it. And then the chorus, the burning down the house line, came from a P-Funk concert that I went to. George Clinton started, yes, I have to admit that. That's beautiful. George Clinton started asking people in the audience. There was a chant that went up, burning down the house, burning down the house. I was thought, wait, he hasn't used this in a song? <laughs> no. And uh, he hadn't. And so I thought, that is a great line. I'm going to use it. And yes, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's what we do if we hear something like that. So I'm guessing this might be like you, like some of those Lines that I had, you might get, watch out, you might get what you're after. That might be the first line. Those are the kind of things I might scribble on a notebook or scribble on a piece of paper and keep those. And then I could draw draw on that and I could go, oh, that line, that'll fit in here in this room I'm in right now. There's just piles of paper everywhere, sometimes with, you know, a little phrase that I've heard scribbled on the margin somewhere. And, <laughs> and I thought, okay, someday I'm going to come back to that and that's going to be, I'm going to find a place for that. Okay, so how do you work? You know, you know, for me, it really depends on the song. I have a few different ways of approaching a rap song. You know, one of them is that I hear a, a beat or something that I really like, and I just spend enough time with it so that I can recreate it in my mind, and I can have it playing in my mind even if I'm not hearing it. And then a hook will come out of that and I try to find some way to make whatever hook melody I hear interesting or compelling with words and then I try to pull some theme out of that to write lyrics to like that's that's one approach another is that I also have various notes a lot of them are digital now which is not great I'm still I'm embracing that you know having a bunch of notes on my computer but I also miss having physical notebooks and things that I've handwritten out but these notes 
they are song ideas or maybe a verse idea. Like they're mostly premises. Like I'll have a premise for a song. And I think it's a lot like how stand-up comedians are, you know, they're people watching and they see something and it becomes a premise for a joke. I think that I operate in a very similar fashion and that like I have premises for songs and I try to, and then if I hear a piece of music that I like, I'll see if oh, can this premise work over this song? Can this premise work over this song? But it just kind of depends on whether or not the beat or the music speaks to something in me instantly where it causes me to generate a brand new thing or if it's like, I like this, I want to use it. Let me see if one of these premises work. I I have done that occasionally too. So occasionally I'll say, oh, I'm going to write a song. I want to write a song about, wait a minute, a dog's, from a dog's point of view, or I wonder where a song, imagine a world where things have fallen apart and kind of the cities are, it's all urban warfare. The world I know of going out to hear music and everything like that, that's a thing of the past. So I can write from that kind of premise, but I don't do that all the time. So when I, I even wrote this down, I thought, I suspected that you, like in the same way that a stand-up comedian would have a premise for a kind of a section of things that that person would say. Like they would say, I'm going to talk about this. And like a comedian, when I hear your work, and I'm, I think probably other people too, they're going to naturally assume that this is from your own life. The things you're talking about are your own life. But they might be wrong. Is some of it from your own life? Is all of it from your own life? Or is it a made-up person? I guess the best way to ask this is like, and and not and, and I'm not asking this just in uh, in terms of my own ego type curiosity, but just like, what have you heard? <laughs> like what? Because what? I, I, I'm I'm interested in in meeting your question in terms of the work that you're familiar with for me, because I think that'll give that'll give me the best way to frame the answer. Okay, I've heard a record, uh, dark comedy. I've heard what I think is the new record, which has Black Mirror episode on it. That's I've heard that album. There's one in between. I think a record in between. Yeah, Brick Body Kid still daydream potentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think the artwork on the cover of that is just beautiful. Oh my gosh, yeah. I want to ask about the artists that you work with to do the graphics and all that. That was an amazing process because I had the concept for that artwork because that entire project is about the housing projects in Chicago that my family grew up in. Like, not my immediate family, but my cousins and aunt. And I lived about a mile away from there. So we spent a lot of time in this public housing complex that was really huge and sometimes scary and like no other place I'd ever been in my life. And um, it got demolished. The whole system is about like 16 buildings got demolished around 2000 or 2001 and nothing was put in that space and it took me a few years to realize that because I think in my mind I was away in college at the time that it happened I remember noting that it happened but in my mind I naturally assumed that if they were demolishing this housing complex they were making a way for some new fancy development or some sports arena or something but if you go to that spot now it is a giant empty field on the south side of Chicago and it's really, really 
stark. And I had a lot of feelings about that. And so I built the album kind of around the feeling that I had about knowing what used to be there and knowing that there's nothing there now. And I brought that concept to the artist and, you know, of personifying the buildings as as people. And he, I mean, he just executed beyond my, my wildest dreams. I think that that's part of the answer to your question, too, because if you look at the arc from Dark Comedy, which I think is like my third album, to uh, Anime Trauma and Divorce, which is the most recent one, which is, I think, my sixth album, I think. I have gotten more personal as my catalog, as I've made albums. I've started off having a lot of, a lot of my work was aimed outward and and trying to provide social commentary and, and thoughts about what's going on in the world and the state of people and wealth disparity and racial injustice and and little mundane things like about me washing dishes and, and like, you know, that was my aim. But there had been this natural kind of course for me moving into making things that were a little more real to me. And before my last album, my last album was initially intended to be this this treatise on anime and where that crosses over into black culture like that was where I was aiming but then you know a lot of stuff in my personal life got really hectic and I was trying to figure out how to like push through some really difficult things that were happening to me and my therapist reminded me like hey you're very fortunate in that you have this outlet in music to be able to communicate things and express feelings that people would people would kill to have the sort of outlet that you have and it had kind of occurred to me that I really wasn't taking advantage of it for that. I'd always been so, so conceptual in my approach that I was really, I wasn't putting, I didn't feel like I was putting enough of my actual self in the records. And so in my most recent one, it is very, like, it is very much about me, but I am, I have to do it in a way where it's still entertaining for me because there's a thing where if a person is too earnest in art, it like bothers me for some reason. I think it's just some hang up that I have. But if, cause if you look at a song like the Black Mirror episode ruined my marriage, like that's not something that literally happened to me. But <laughs> but it is drawing from a very real feeling I felt after watching an episode of Black Mirror, you know. Yeah. And those songs work because everybody recognizes those feelings or those moments. And they go, I know what he's. Yeah, I know what he's talking about. I mean, it didn't happen to me exactly like that, but I know what he's talking about. And. Okay, and I, I did get that, that the earlier things are more, a little more impersonal. I heard a kind of, as you said, a commentary or an analysis even of media and hip-hop, the world, the culture, social situations. And then, yes, more recent things, you're kind of looking inward, looking at yourself and, and questioning yourself and your own decisions. And it's... it's to me, it's incredibly brave and honest to put all that out there and kind of make basically strip down naked and go, this is me and this is the stuff I deal with and this is the stuff I'm thinking. So hard. Yeah, it's a hard thing to do to break out of that objective thing because I, I do that all the time and then kind of actually talk about, no, this is the stuff that I'm really going through. Black time got style, African push, she got a brother named Charles, if we on that bullshit, I protect my neck with some magical jewels, it can't none of y'all take them from me, yeah, yeah, 
and Cortez Cause I feel like fate begin My fit got a head like the dome of a stadium You think it's all good, but it's really get great again Back it now, ladies, in the clearly Canadian Yeah, don't turn away from me, look at my eye Brother got heart, but he running with psychos He always got a gang with him, hella disciples They always trying to fight, though, but I stay cool I can't lose, no argument, I got my jewels I keep my head down, pushing like I'm walking to school Yeah, I hold him tight like infinity gym Policemen looking at me like I'm finna be him No, my daddy is a hard man, my mother's a ghost I keep my head covered up, my brother will roast And y'all be fucking with my head with thoughts tougher than jokes I ran hard, my footprints covered the coast and i've been running through walls cause i'm buffered in most of nightcrawler tried to creep a smell suckers approach he's sick i'm all charged to get what he provoked the homie time got power so i'm tugging his cloak yeah i'm big as hell can't fit in my fit my sleeves ripped i'm the king so my ring is legit i bring shit to your front you know one thing i definitely want to ask you about is like you you've had a really robust career in music and I'm wondering, like, for somebody who has the creative vision you have, and, you know, I, I watched Stop Making Sense for the first time last night, and I was high off of Edible, and I was blown away. And, and I thought I knew what Stop Making Sense was, because I'd seen clips of it. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell you this real, one simple thing, David, that nobody ever told me all, all these years. Like, I knew Stop Making Sense was the concert film for the talking heads with you in a big suit. Nobody ever told me the suit got bigger <laughs> over the course of the show. Nobody ever told me that. So I had this incorrect psychological assumption of what it was going to be. And I watched it yesterday and it was just absolutely mind blowing. And I watched a little bit of American utopia today and I'm just seeing like the depth of the vision. And I see that you've been doing this now for years and you've, been able to maintain a sense of pure vision in a business that seems to always want to like attack that and dominate that. And I wonder for you, what has been the key to maintaining the energy to be so creative when I can only imagine there's been times when the business has tried to either push you away from that into like, oh, you could just be, you could be a pop star. You could be Madonna. You could, you know, I see that as something that has probably happened. And I just wonder how you've been able to maintain your creative integrity so deeply for all of this time in the business. Wow. Well, thank you. Yes, you're right. There was a period where this kind of, uh, what would you, I don't know what you'd call it, the carrot was being dangled in front of me like, you're on the ladder now. You can, be, you can be a big star and be playing, doing this if you just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> and at the same time, I thought, but I like being able to do different kinds of things. I like being able to change. And I know I'm going to lose some audience if I do that, but I don't want to be trapped in what I do. So I kind of stepped away from it a little bit, which for my mental and creative health, I believe that that was a good thing that I did. But yeah, it did result in some career ups and downs, some economic ups and downs. And there was a period when records were not selling so much. I went from <laughs> playing, you know, nice big theaters or whatever to playing little clubs the kind of back where you started kind of thing and I thought okay but I'm still playing music I'm still doing it I'm going to keep doing it if I can and uh, eventually maybe I'll find something or something's going to click with people maybe not everything I do is going to click with people but once in a while it does and maybe that's all I need 
to just connect every once in a while. I can't like write a hit song if somebody tells me to, but occasionally something, it happens. Occasionally I kind of, it comes together and I do something that people like it. That has, yes, that has saved my life. I've also been, I think, very lucky when I was coming up, was playing playing uh, with Talking Heads in a little club. And we got, it was a period where a whole bunch of other bands were playing out. There was a little scene. The press came. The record labels came and signed everybody up. All that kind of stuff happened. And I thought, a, a year or two later, that wouldn't have happened. A year or two earlier, it wouldn't have happened. I just happened to be writing and performing at that moment. I was very, very lucky. That took me on a, you know, on a journey that paid for me to have a house and, uh, well, you know, all that. I don't have that house anymore, but (laughs) that happens too. You brought some of the uh, influences. You brought some of these things up, like uh, anime, anime. And I thought, are there specific books or movies or things that you can mention? And you go, that had a huge effect on me. Yeah. So the kind of anime, there's, there's, there's two kinds that, that really resonate with me. One is kind of, it's, it's, it's a more traditional, it's called shonen anime. And those are like the power fantasy anime. So like your Dragon Ball Z, your... Um, Gosh, let me think of another one. Full Metal Alchemist. Um, gosh. But that's not... That stuff is like hero's journey stuff. And I think it's just really important for people who feel marginalized or oppressed in any way. I think like that stuff resonates with them because it, it stimulates their imagination and, and allows them to think of... Like to imagine having power in, in, in situations where they don't feel powerful. So that's pretty straightforward, I guess. There's another kind of anime that always resonates with me. And I don't know if it has an official name, but I like to call it trauma anime. They do this really interesting thing in a lot of anime where you you meet a character, you meet a protagonist in episode one in a situation where it feels kind of like a slice of life. You're just seeing a person go through life. Like there's this one called Tokyo Ghoul. And in this world, it's a normal civilization. But within civilization, there are people who look just like you and me but they can only survive by eating other people. And they go through the night and they do that and they try to leave no evidence of it. So people keep disappearing and they know that there's people eating people, but they don't know who's doing it because it's very important for the people doing it to keep it a secret. But it's also biologically the only way they can survive. They can't, they literally can't eat anything else. And this show starts with you, you meet this kid in high school and he's like a nervous guy and you meet a buddy of his and they seem kind of socially outcast, but generally, you know, good-hearted boys and and this guy tells this other guy this girl he got a crush on and he's gonna ask her out and he does and they go on like a lunch date and she's kind of like he's kind of nerdy and she's kind of mousy but like he says he likes her and she says she likes him too and it's this nice moment and they're taking a walk and they walk through an alley and then she tries to eat him (laughs) like right in the middle of this episode and you throughout the show you watch this change disturb him emotionally in every way that you can imagine like you see him unravel uh and 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 become 
a different person based on this chain. And the depth that these sorts of anime go resonates with me. It's just not, it's the depth of character that you get in these in these stories. Because a lot of American entertainment doesn't push the characters that far. It just psychologically and emotionally, you, you get to see humans just go places that you just don't see in other types of stories. Wow. And I don't don't know those anime titles at all. I only know like Akira. Akira's perfect. That's trauma anime for sure. Yeah, I mean, I know that, and um, Ghost, Ghost in the Machine. The Ghost in the Shell. Ghost yeah. in the Shell, the Japanese one, not not the live-action remake. And, yes, and those are like world-building. There's like a, creates a whole world that you just fall into as soon as you start seeing it. Then that brings me to filmmakers that do that. And I'm, I'm thinking of, like, Terrence Nance like, did uh, the TV show. I think it's come a second season is coming. Random Acts of Flyness, yes. Yeah, yeah, Random Acts of Flyness. Uh, and he did a film, oh, years ago, something about her beauty. Um, oh, gosh, somebody's going to know the right title of it. It's a really, really innovative film. And uh, who else am I thinking? Boots Riley? Mm-hmm. Yes, I love Boots. He was a mus- uh, probably still is, a musician who would score did scores and then yeah did this amazing again it's like a sci-fi film but it doesn't start off that way yeah i think it, it is that same arc like that same arc of yeah you following a guy and his economic struggles and then you 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 see this whole conspiracy with these horse people and all you know, oh my god <laughs> yes <laughs> that is what i love and that is you know like that's the that's the stuff that i strive to make musically and i would and the stuff that honestly i'm trying to make in tv too but it's just it's been really tough for me to you know the gatekeeping is is something else yes but i, I mean i find it encouraging that he did it went from music to doing a film and i thought okay it's not impossible it's not impossible Every once in a while, somebody does it, and you go, look, look, yes, the gatekeepers were asleep or out getting, out getting coffee or something. Uh, when you're working, do you think of who's listening? Do you think of an audience? Do you have an imaginary audience that you're kind of directing what you're doing to, or do you, as you do, are you doing it just for yourself, and whoever hears it, hears it? I began my career definitely thinking uh, just for myself. As my career went forward, Especially when I started, I started doing a lot of work out here in LA, where I would do I would do my music on on comedy shows and and perform in front of a lot of comedy audiences. Because compared to the underground rap audience I came from, I found that the comedy audiences were really listening to the words, and that was so exciting to me because I hadn't really experienced people hearing the thought that I was putting into the words because they weren't paying as much attention as these comedy audiences were. So I started from writing for me. And then after that experience, I started kind of trying to think about people more. But then I ultimately found that fruitless and went back to just thinking about me. Because what I found in in my journey is like, I don't just like this conversation happening and how it's surprising to me because I'm like, how has David Byrne heard of me? I'm never sure who has or hasn't heard of me and I'm never sure how they will and so in my career journey that's meant all kinds of different people have found something in my stuff and you know that's out of the good fortune of me being able to continue to to make music and and people have found something in it but it's not I found it fruitless to try to think about audience because there was too many different types of people in my audience 
Yeah, it sound, sounds like like if you were at comedy clubs. Okay, so tell me what you did. Did you have like a, a laptop with the, the beats and the music on it that you could hit and then go into something? or, And then would you change it from night to night? Like say, oh, I'm going to try, I'm going to rewrite this section and see if it works better. I wouldn't change the songs as much, but I would definitely cha- change the songs that I would do. I would change my set list a lot because there was this weird balance of depending on the comedy show, like sometimes doing my funnier songs was not a good idea in the comedy show because then it kind of felt like a pandering thing sometimes. Sometimes it was better for me to do my more serious stuff to provide some contrast for the comedy show. And that was something I always had to kind of feel out from night to night. And the audiences were fine with that? They weren't like, hey, 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 where's the funny stuff? No, because typically it would be 75 to 80% funny stuff through, through the whole night and then just me doing music. I'd be the only person doing that. And I think that there's something about the way that I even go about writing serious songs that works in that arena. That sounds great. I have had some awful experiences <laughs> open, opening for comics, but, you know. I can, I can imagine, in, yeah, both. You and the comics, you're just up there alone. And if they're not, if they're not listening to the words, if they're not doing it, it's not working for them. Boy, you know right away. Here's a question for you. I was fascinated to find out that you founded uh, Luwaka Bop. I had no idea that was your undertaking at all. And that's also some music that threw my light, like Tom Zay, Asamutantis, like that type of stuff. I'm like, because I listen to music the way that hip hop producers do, I hear a lot of stuff. And then that stuff was always so good. I was blown away to find out that you started that label. And I'm wondering, like, do you enjoy the business of music in that sense, in terms of trying to uh, take something that's unknown or or underheard, underappreciated, and put resources into it and trying to get it to where people hear it. That part I love. To be honest, I'm not as involved in the label as I used to be. I have some records right now that I'm listening to that they're going to put out, and they've spent years putting it together. There's one that they just did with Pharaoh Sanders, the jazz saxophonist, and a young electronic musician in England called Floating Points, and they did a record together. And it is so beautiful. And I thought, man, I hope people hear this. Because it's not, you know, it's not like a pop jazz record. It's not like he does beats. Well, if you know Pharaoh Sanders stuff, the creator has a master plan and all that. It's it's very spiritual. Anyway, some of this Tom Zay, I heard that on vinyl. You know, we go into a record store. This was in Brazil, and I just bought records blind. I looked at the cover, and I go, what the hell is this? It says Samba on the cover, but it's got barbed wire on the graphics. I thought, this guy has something to say. So, you know, I got got it home, and uh, sure enough, I just thought, oh, my God, this guy is, he is totally out in the you know avant-garde with anything that's happening in this country in europe whatever he's doing it and of course there were other people doing it too i thought people need to hear this you know we're very kind of inward looking we think that everything happens around us and i thought yeah there's there were things going on there and in other places as well that make us a little more humble if we heard some of the things that other people were doing i want to just take a moment to really thank you for your approach to that Because, you know, all throughout, especially, uh, you know, American rock music history, there's been a lot of borrowing inspiration and sometimes outright theft of music that was made 
elsewhere or made by poor people or, you know, and a lot of times what I have not liked in in a lot of American music history is that you can hear bands who you can hear very obvious black blues inspiration from and they never point back to those people. And And I've always appreciated how you have pointed out all of your influences, whether it be, you know, world music, Fela, whether it be Dadaist <laughs> poetry, there's a certain reverence that I think just makes all the difference in the world in, in terms of how music goes forward, because it's very easy to just make it seem like you're just doing something new and just take all the props and, and run. But I've just always appreciated how much you've, you've pointed at other people and really uh, tried to shine a light where there wasn't much Thank you. I discovered at one point, probably was not right away, but eventually I discovered that it really doesn't cost you anything to give people credit. You know, it's not like you give anything up. Since you were in the com- these comedy clubs, were there any comedians whose work influenced you? Most of the comedians that influenced me was stuff that I've been listening to before I even started performing in those kind of clubs. So a lot of people I, I never got to meet or work with, like Stephen Wright. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. I hear that. I hear that. There's like a, a lineage of him that went through like Mitch Hedberg and the most modern day equivalent is probably Anthony Jeselnik. Like the whole thing they're doing is coming up with these little like mind-exploding machines of of one-liners, ways that they can subvert expectations really quickly in these tiny stories and turns of phrase. That sort of approach to the craft of joke-making and writing has influenced me a lot. Wow. Yes, I can hear that. What do you think of the current state of the music business in terms of the difference in revenue, I should say, that an artist can make since things are mostly digital now and how that affects musicians trying to make a living. I know you would only answer that from your perspective and how you see things, but I just I'm interested because you've seen it develop and change so much over the years. Yeah, I definitely have opinions about about it. To give it some perspective, during the CD era, record companies were making money hand over foot. They were just like, they cost them, I don't know, 50 cents to make a CD after first couple of years. And they were still charging, whatever, $15 for these things. This was just like money was just pouring in. And it was totally unfair. They could have charged half as much for CDs as what they charge and still done all right. But they'd established, you know, this level of price and people, they just kind of kept going at it. And I thought, you know, you're kind of asking for it here. I've spent some time kind of trying to figure out the streaming income, which is really hard to figure out. Record companies are now coming back up. They're making money. I have to believe that it's mainly a a handful of very, very popular artists that are driving all that success. The emerging artists and artists on the kind of middle and lower tiers of whatever sales or streaming numbers, I thought for them, it's very, very hard to make a living. They're still making, you know, even myself too, make a living doing live shows. And maybe if a song gets licensed for a movie or something like that, I thought, okay. So that's really hard. It both shocks me and really makes me feel good that when I, you know, when I'm just kind of browsing around and seeing what new music is out there, this incredible music, your music. Thank you. You know, lots of people doing all kinds of stuff. And I thought, how is that possible? How is this, you know, how is this possible that all these people are doing great stuff and it must be really hard to make a living doing it? People must really love music <laughs> because, because they keep doing it in spite of the economic difficulties. That's true. I mean, it, it really is something that kind of is a, 
you know, a healing, something from that people need in their lives. And it feels like, oh, for God's sake, it's so important to people. Can we just like make a living doing it? Yeah, because I think it's it, what has really changed, and it, in the short time I've been in the business, is the path of, of upward mobility seems to have really changed. And with that path feeling more closed off, it's it's just the revenue situation is tough now because the streaming, the formulas they're using to come up with the streaming rev, it doesn't scale down. If you only have 50,000 fans... If you're even lucky to have that, what you're going to be able to generate with them streaming your music, it's just not, it doesn't compare to when 50,000 people were paying, you know, 10 bucks a pop to have a listen to what you're doing. Exactly. When they were paying 10 bucks a pop, you could pretty much kind of live on that. Yeah. Yeah. And then that would allow you to do the next thing that you were going to do. And now it's like, well, wait a minute. So now I have to have a hundred times more fans than what I already have. And I just thought, well, what if my music doesn't have that kind of appeal? Right, if it's not mass market. What, what, what do I do? Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the music. There's plenty of music that doesn't get, you know, recognized for years or decades or whatever, uh, but it's still good. Yeah, we can, have, we can have a pity party for sure. <laughs> well, David, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say just thank you for reaching out and speaking with me. It's really been, like, I don't use this word a lot, but it really feels like it's been a delight <laughs> I just appreciate it, and it's, it's been really nice to talk to you. And for me, yes, also a delight, and I hope that we can actually physically meet and have a drink or a coffee or something someday, someday. Absolutely. Fuse is produced by Libby Flores, associate publisher at Bomb. It is edited and engineered by Will Smith, with production assistance by Josh Dasa. I'm Chantal McStay, Associate Editor at Bomb Magazine. Our theme music is Black Origami by Jalen. This project is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Subscribe to Fuse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. With a beautiful wife, and you may ask yourself...